100 years ago this week, the sixth of the Gman Hussein letters was sent. This was a series of ten letters between Henry McMahon, British High Commissioner of Egypt, and Hussein bin Ali, Sharif of Mecca. Hussein began the exchange with a demand for a great Arab kingdom, whose borders would be Turkey in the north, the Mediterranean and Red Sea in the west, Iran and the Persian Gulf in the east and include the whole of the Arabian Peninsula except the tiny province of Aden and its strategically important port. In exchange, Hussein promised to unite the Arabs in support of Britain's battle against the Turks in Arabia, Iraq and Syria, the battle to dry up the great river Euphrates, as Revelation 16 verse 12 symbolises it. McMahon, with certain caveats, accepted. However, only four months later, in May 1916, Britain also made a deal with France, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This Anglo-French agreement divided Hussein's proposed kingdoms into two spheres of influence, A and B, one for France, the other for Britain. From this springs the myths of the great Arab betrayal, the myth that all subsequent Middle Eastern turmoil and war is due to its colonial past, and the myth that Israel is illegitimate and therefore to blame for consequent international terrorism. Hello, this is Nick Barnes with this week's Bible in the News. This Anglo-French Sykes-Picot agreement appears, on the face of it, to be a direct contradiction of the assurances given by McMahon to Hussein. However, the reality is that it deals with spheres of influence, not with direct rule. These areas were subsequently ratified at the Paris Peace Conference as mandates granted to these great powers. And as Wikipedia explains to us, the objective of the League of Nations mandate system was to administer parts of the defunct Ottoman Empire which had been in control of the Middle East since the 16th century, until such time as they are able to stand alone. So instead of the Anglo-French agreement being in direct opposition to the commitments made to Hussein, it was intended, at least by some, to be the means of putting them into practice. Of course, Hussein didn't get everything he wanted, but then neither did anybody else. Neither the French nor the British, and especially not the Jews, got what they had expected, what they thought they had been promised, and definitely not all that they had hoped for. However, Hussein did get a great deal. Firstly, in 1921, Britain created a protectorate for Abdullah, Sharif Hussein's son, and he became the emir of the Emirate of Transjordan, 
where he reigned as autocrat. In 1946, Transjordan became fully independent and Abdullah became its first king, and his line reigns in Jordan to this day. Also in 1921, the British made Faisal, Abdullah's brother, king of Iraq. Faisal had wanted a rule from Damascus, but the French objected. However, while he may have been unhappy at losing Syria, McMahon had always warned that his assurances applied only to those regions lying within the frontiers where Great Britain is free to act without detriment to the interest of her ally France. And Hussein himself understood this and agreed that to avoid injuring the alliance of Great Britain and France, as regards the northern parts and their coasts, i.e. Syria and Lebanon, we now leave to France in Beirut and its coasts. Whilst he still protested that at the first opportunity after the war is finished, we shall ask you for these territories. And of course, Faisal did subsequently ask for these territories, but there was no commitment or ability on Britain's part to grant the request. Nevertheless, these two adjacent kingdoms of Jordan and Iraq, given to Hussein's sons, stretched from Egypt to Iran. This left only the Arabian Peninsula to make up the vast majority of Hussein's dream kingdom. And had Hussein's claim that all Arabs would follow him been true, it would have been his for the taking. However, not all Arabs would follow him. And in fact, the Arabs of Arabia fought against him, and the House of Saud took the Arabian Peninsula. So Hussein's homeland became part of what is now Saudi Arabia. Hussein's promise, which had persuaded the British to grant him so much, was in fact a lie, or at least untrue. He was never in any position to unite the Arabs. Nobody could unite the Arabs. Instead, he and his sons led a few hundred camel-riding Bedouins to sabotage Turkish railway communications with the assistance of a certain Colonel T.E. Lawrence. At their peak, they fought with a few thousand ill-trained Arab troops in a war which involved over 400 million soldiers. Nonetheless, God's will was fulfilled. Revelation 16 verse 12 says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. This symbol of the great river Euphrates is also used in Revelation 9, verses 14 to 19, where it symbolises the advance of the Muslim empires in the centuries following Muhammad's death. The last of these was the Ottoman Empire, which was finally dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared, as we've read in Revelation 16. These kings of the east, or literally kings of the sun's rising, not the British or Hussein's proposed kingdom, but are Christ and his glorified saints, who will come to rescue Israel from their enemies at the Battle of Armageddon. And in fact, 
It is here in Revelation 16, at verse 16, that we find the battle given that name, Armageddon. However, what Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16 makes clear, is that the stage for the battle was not ready until the Ottoman Empire had passed away. For while the Ottoman power was corrupt and economically stagnant, it did provide stability for that area of the Middle East for 400 years, and its demise was necessary for the next stage, which we read of in Revelation 16, verse 13 and 14, which says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of demons, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. These frog-like demon spirits signify a madness that will draw the great powers of the dragon, beast and false prophet to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And that drying up of the Ottomans has allowed the birth of 22 divided squabbling Arab nations and one Jewish one, the state of Israel. And this madness proceeding from the mouths of the great powers will cause them to intervene in the Middle East and descend upon the mountains of Israel, as we see in Ezekiel 38, to fight against Jerusalem, as recorded in Zechariah 14, to destroy Israel. But Christ will save his people and overthrow their enemy's power. And this madness is already at work. It is a madness which causes the nations to condemn Israel at every turn, to blame them for terrorism of which they are the victims, not the perpetrators, and to delegitimize them for the supposed sins of the now defunct British Empire some 100 years ago. But Revelation 16 verse 15 says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Let us ready ourselves for that day, that we be not found naked, but clothed and ready for his coming, so that at that battle of the great day of God Almighty, we may be there to see Israel rescued from their tormentors. And so we pray for Christ's coming. But if God wills that we have a few more days of opportunity, then see you again next week for another Bible in the News.